electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Bono and Eisen ahead on Fast. The crude climb, oil surging today back above 100 bucks a barrel with no end in sight to the war in Ukraine and OPEC saying it cannot replace that lost Russian supply. Could prices keep ripping higher? Plus, the big banks are on the clock. Earnings season kicks off in just over 12 hours from now. What will the reports from the financials mean for the overall market? And later, a check on the chips. Not the semis, but the potato chips. Shares of Uts lower. Wall Street says they've got no pricing power, so we want to know who does. The traders are set to name names. We start off with a roller coaster ride for the markets today. The S&P rising as much as 1.3 percent early in the, in the day as investors seem to shrug off a surging CPI report. But despite hopes that we've hit peak inflation, stocks couldn't hold on to gains. The S&P ended down more than three-tenths of a percent. The Dow and Nasdaq dropping as well. So what is behind this reversal? Is there more pain to come? I, I think that the notion of peak inflation, like, that's fine. But if inflation sticks... That stinks, BK. Yeah, and I think that's what's not priced in. So that's great, exactly, if this is as high as the inflation as inflation gets. But if prices are sticky and they don't go down, and they don't go down for a while, that's a problem. So if you look at some of the market indicators on inflation, like break-evens, which you can tease out from the bond market, they're telling you two years out, you're still going to have inflation above 4%. So I think what we had this morning was a bit of a relief Thank goodness inflation wasn't 9 or 10 percent, and the Fed doesn't have to raise 75 basis points in May. But once the reality of the economic backdrop and the fact that we probably still do have this sticky price inflation and there's not a lot of pricing power, maybe not any pricing power, I think once that kind of sunk into the market, then you start started people selling. Yeah, so it's interesting. What is the market, if you will? I mean, the algos don't know what to make of an 8.5% CPI right. reading, which a lot of the people out there from a qualitative standpoint think is actually much higher. And your point about what's sticky and what's not, there is a couple very big variables. I'll just say this. You know, prior to the pandemic, we remember that the Fed was dying to get inflation, core inflation, above 2%, right? And GDP was averaging 2.2% over the prior 10 years to that. I mean, it's going to take some while while to get back to those norms, we will revert. And I think, you know, at some point, I think the best thing for equity investors who are thinking about valuations getting compressed and opportunities in the post-pandemic period, it would be great for the Fed to hit this kind of hard early on here, slow the economy down. You think the Fed is trying to put the economy in a recession. I don't really think that. I just don't think that they want to see risk assets go crazy at a time where they cannot control all of these external factors that are causing things like oil and stuff to go up. So at the end of the day, hit it hard early, have values compressed. I think we've talked about this all the time. We've seen it for a year, high valuation stuff getting absolutely destroyed. What needs to happen last is the broad market to come in, and those are the biggest generals. Yeah, and when do earnings estimates start coming in? I mean, I suppose during earnings season we'll get a better idea. We'll get more earnings revisions, potentially lower guy. Yesterday, Bank of America trimmed its earnings estimates for 22 and, and a little bit more deep, uh, deeply for 23, but really not too much. Um, and, and so how do you start? 
start thinking about inflation, particularly when it's it seems to be really entrenched in consumers' minds. I mean, that's what we're talking about. The impact on the consumer in their behavior, because if, according to the New York Fed Consumer Survey, the one year looking out inflation expectation is still six and a half percent, that's terrible. I mean, as a consumer, I don't want to be spending a lot of extra money on things. No, it's terrible. But that's what they wanted all along. They said for years we want inflation. And I've said for years, <laughs> be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. It's like that scene in Jaws, if you recall, on the beach when the mayor was talking to Quint et al. and Brody. He said, you yell barracuda, nobody cares. You yell shark and you have a panic. And that's what's going on with gasoline. People don't really notice their eggs going up in price of milk. But when gasoline goes from three and a half dollars a gallon to five dollars a gallon, everybody's talking about it. That's what it is, and that, and that impacts consumer behavior. I'll say this. I think BK would agree. It's really hard to get the inflation they wanted. You know it's even harder? Getting rid of it. And they're going to be mired in this yeah. for a long time. So when Dan talks about mean reversion, I agree. You're also going to see mean reversion in the form of what people are willing to pay for earnings for the S&P 500. And the mean reversion there should be like a 16 handle or so. Where are we in that process, Bonoin? I mean, if the pendulum swung one way, it's got to go back. That's what we're talking about, right? So where does it go back to? Uh, in terms of valuation, I think you're going to see mid to high teens uh, overall. And, you know, there will definitely be some uh, dispersion depending on what the subsector is. You know, in terms of the, the overall inflation story and, and how that gets back to our, you know, target two and a half to three and a half percentage uh, I mean, I think that's going to be a bit of a protracted um, process, kind of like Guy mentioned. Uh, in terms of how it affects the consumer, I think a lot of us have pointed to the savings rate that the consumer has been able to build during COVID. But if you look at access to credit and, and you've seen that growth, it means that the consumer is becoming more strapped, presumably paying for one services and two, the core basket of goods. I don't think that really bodes well for the ability to add more leverage to a balance sheet. Maybe delevering would be good to an extent, but the capacity to add that, that leverage to the balance sheet seems to be a bit more constrained than what we're pricing in. Um, BK, some might say that there is peak inflation, that we've hit the, the worst of it, but others, like yourself. Mm. I think we have not hit peak inflation, particularly when it comes to oil. Yeah, I think if you look at energy prices, oil is the big one out there. I mean, you saw today we had a couple different things happen out there. You had, number one, the SPR sale was over with. We had OPEC come out and said, listen, we can't fill the gap here. Um, and then you saw oil started to rip higher, right? And so what I think is important about that is exactly what everybody else is saying is gasoline prices go higher. And everybody says, right, you can't print more oil. You can print plenty of money. You can raise rates. But this is something that the Federal Reserve cannot fix. And then add into it, look at what natural gas prices did today. They've almost doubled this year. And if you're going into the summer season where you get a lot of uh, cooling by natural gas, that, again, keeps inflation high and hot and moving higher. And there's not much the Fed can do about that. You can raise rates to 8 percent, but you're not going to be able to do much about that. How do we process that then? I don't know. Listen, these guys know a lot more about OPEC and oil and all that. All I know is... But this is, feeds into everything. And so, you, I mean, right. you may not know about no. it, and I don't know no, about no, 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 it no. and how high it'll go, et cetera, et cetera. But if it goes higher, it's still going to have an impact. Right. But all I know is that oil spikes higher and then goes lower for years. That's what I've known throughout my entire career. And when I think about that, I'm just saying over the last 25 years, that's exactly what's happened. In the last rate hiking cycle we're in, and I know it's different this time, okay? But the last time we saw the 
dollar rally. We saw, you know, rates go higher. We saw crude get absolutely decimated. And we were at a time where growth was really good for a while. And then it got really a gut punch in 16, right, when there was a global growth scare. So I guess my point is we're hiking right now. The Fed is likely to move to a more dovish stance at some point in a year or so. And who knows where growth is going to be. And we might live in this bipolar world where, you know, parts of Europe learn how to deal without Russian oil and Russian right. natural gas. And maybe it's, you know, China is not as big of a player. And we go back to crude being 50 bucks, which has kind of always been on okay, average. But that's a, year, that's a year from now, minimum, before but we the mar- get back to But the to stock market will start discounting. The because- stock market already is discounting. Okay. That's my point. Every equity, and not every equity, but most equity investors are out there saying exactly what you're saying, is that, hey, listen, the Fed's going to have to ease eventually. We're going to get a recession. We're going to have to ease. What if they don't? That's what's not priced in. When you look at sticky Because they always do, BK. Just go back to 2018. They you know, always they do. They always do. They didn't I mean, in 1980s. They didn't in the 1970s. It was a different thing. They didn't in the 1930s. It was a totally different. I mean, they had well, a totally a different, different agenda. Yeah, but 2008 is very different than this economic environment. The Fed doesn't want rates, doesn't want stocks to go higher, doesn't want risk assets to go higher. They told you that. They're selling calls against this market because they want people to go back to work. They don't want them day trading crypto and stocks and memes and apes and everything. They don't want that. Okay. They need to throw grit into the economy. They need to slow things down. I mean, that's that's the whole point of all of this guy. And I guess that is what we grapple with every single day when we stocks when we see stocks lately go down. How much of how much grit is the Fed willing to throw into the wheels of the economy, so to speak? A lot more than they have already. And I'm sort of with BK on this one. I mean, they've trotted out and I'm using that term uh, by choice. They've trotted out just about every Fed official possible saying exactly that. The most dovish of the dovish have come out and said, hey, you know, we might have gotten this one wrong and we're going to slow things down. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, the market's choosing not to believe them. Maybe a lot of people are in dance camp where, you know what, they're going to get spooked by the market. I don't think they are. I don't think the market's in their purview right now. I think inflation is firmly in it, and they're going to do whatever they can to stop it. And if the market is collateral damage on the back of it, so be it. By the way, a market that's basically only gone up, albeit obviously for that couple-month period a couple years ago, in a straight line for the last 13 years. All right. Meantime, rising energy prices have oil stocks leading the markets today. Marathon Oil, Devon Energy, Diamondback and Occidental Petroleum. Among the gainers, our next guest says oil prices could still go higher. Let's bring in Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. Paul, great to have you with us. BK says 150. You say 110 to 150. Structurally, that's where oil should go, you say. At what point do we hit demand destruction, especially as consumers are facing inflation in so many other parts of the economy? Well, as you know, the U.S. gasoline price is still about half the level it is, uh, for example, in Europe. And we still don't think that it's that huge a part of people's income. Uh, but you've, you've been on fire today and you've got the you've got the idea right, which is that the sticker shock uh, it, it is bad for Americans at the moment. Having said that, we're going into summer and typically prices go higher into summer. It's not a whole lot more complicated than that. And with low unemployment, I think we'll have a pretty, a pretty lively driving season coming up. Hey, Paul, it's BK. So I'm curious, are there structural things that we're talking about that would keep oil prices higher? So I'm thinking, you know, uh, the political will not to have anybody uh, drilling anymore, rerouting the route. So now Russian oil has to go through the Baltics all the way around and over to China. Those are the type of things to me that seem like they're going to keep oil prices elevated for a while. Am I right or is there something I'm missing? 
Well, I mean, the Russia thing is obviously just enormous. I mean, we're talking about, you know, one of the big three, Saudi Arabia and US and, and Russia be, being, you know, effectively out of the market now. And the way the Germans and the EU are, are talking, it's it's a real fool me once, you know, they're not, they're not going to go back to Russian energy. So I think we've lost those barrels and that's a very big deal. You've lost the natural gas, which is a big deal for European refining. Uh, you're tight distillate because you're short European refining. Uh, and all of this stuff looks pretty structural to us. You know, so I think, you're, yeah, you're thinking about it the right way. Um, Paul, I wanted to ask you about uh, gasoline and, and the notion that increasing the percentage of ethanol could help prices. Ethanol is made from corn, which is also very high in price and in, in shortage or will be in shortage. And I'm wondering how you view the Biden administration's latest attempt to sort of ease the pain of the consumer, so to speak. Well, you know, we've pretty much hated the ethanol mandate for 15 years now. Of course, it wasn't a Biden uh, or a Democrat, for, for, uh, for that matter. It was, uh, it was George W. Bush that originally pushed uh, ethanol into our gas tanks. And we just think it's a bad idea. Ethanol is less efficient. Uh, as you say, it's made from corn and we've kind of got a global food crisis here. Uh, so we don't like it as a policy. And, um, you know, it may serve to bring down prices a little bit, but at the same time, you could easily be looking at higher corn prices higher food prices, higher feedstock prices as a result. So it's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, as they say, and we don't like the policy. Hi, Paul. Um, Previously on the panel, we talked about the boom-bust cycle that seems very repetitive in terms of commodities and oil specifically. Would you mind weighing in a little bit in terms of how the the advent of renewables starts to affect that boom-bust cycle going forward? Yeah, I mean, I was really enjoying the debate, guys, earlier. You, you're, you're all on fire. It's tremendous. But, you know, I think the main thing that we've now established is that natural gas has a huge role in the future of energy for many, many decades to come. And I think there was a bit of denial about, you know, putting natural gas in a fossil fuels basket and saying, let's get rid of all fossil fuels. And, you know, the next thing that happens is it's not an exaggeration to say is that Russia invades Ukraine, assuming that, you know, Europe is just overly dependent on them and, and really can't do anything to stop it. So it has huge consequences. And, you know, we really think it's important to develop natural gas alongside wind and solar uh, for a more stable energy future than we're we're getting right now. I mean, the shutdown of nuclear also makes no sense. So I think the cycle is going to last longer. We are worried about demand destruction. That's the key thing to think about. But at the moment, you know, there's such little employment here in the U.S. and the economy is still so hot. I think it's going to be a very hot summer. Uh, earlier, we were talking about pendulum swinging or things going back to the mean. And, and so, Paul, I'm wondering what you think the path is to oil going back to, let's say, $50 a barrel. I mean, is it that the big energy company, big oil companies start drilling again? I mean, what, what is the scenario under which that happens? You know, that, that's, they're not lying. They're saying we don't have the people. We, you know, we really can't. Uh, drill any faster than we're drilling. And we're already increasing spending and activity. And, you know, if you go to Midland, for example, in the Permian, it's tight, drum tight. There's no labor available, very little steel. The list goes on. So they're not they're not, not drilling, you know, at, because there's spare capacity. They're, they're kind of maxed out. And as a result, uh, I don't think the supply side is going to bring down prices. I think it's going to have to be demand, demand destruction. I'm afraid to say recession, maybe. Hmm. Paul, thank you. Always great to get your thoughts. Paul, thank you. All right. So uh, oil stocks, Guy, favorites. They go higher. You know, the last time, well, he's been on a few times. He was on, Paul was on around Halloween, boo, by the way. And he mentioned MPC. It had a 64 handle. And I think collectively we said this should be an $85 stock. Well, 
Look down at your Google machine today and see where it traded up to. This is a three-year high in the name. OIH, back to the 300 level briefly today, pulled back. All those names, specifically Schlumberger and Halliburton, they're better-run companies today than they were at their previous peak with oil at higher prices, and the stocks are still significantly lower. Those stocks should be higher, and I still think energy grinds higher from here, Mel. Yeah, I mean, in, in general, if you want to get the energy trade, you can do it you know, through the refiners is one way to do it, or look at something like ExxonMobil, because you know right there you're going to be getting a nice dividend also, and it's unlikely that that, that dividend's going to be cut in this environment. So that's probably another way to express that view on oil. Yeah, and also chasing oil stocks here might be the most obvious thing to do, and maybe you want to fade them here rather than just pile on. That's just my take, but what do I know? Always going against the grain. Bring bring them. What do you got? Coming up, big bank earnings on deck with oil back above 100 bucks a barrel. Our next guest says it could have a huge impact on financials. RBC's Gerard Cassidy joins us in just a few to break it down. But first, the poster child for growth, the one stock whose gains today caught the eye of one of our traders. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. There hasn't been another situation where an ETF has been created to bet against another ETF. Uh, and, and my attitude towards that is, wow, they are so sure that American innovation is, is not uh, going to be a sensible place to invest, that they have created a fund to short our strategy. From my point of view, if we are right and I trust our research, they're doing no research. They're just making a judgment call, I think, on valuations. Uh, that was Kathy Wood, CEO of ARK Invest, defending her strategy, her flagship ETF, having a rough year, down nearly 40 percent so far in 2022. Um, she was talking about SARC, which is the short version of her ETF. There are other ETFs out there that short other ones. Um, and I, I think that it 
it's probably safe to say that it's a short-term ETF. It's not something that's meant to be a 10-year holding or anything like that. Uh, Listen, I think her point is a good one from a sentiment standpoint. Okay, so, you know, many of those stocks that are in her portfolio, like you said, Mel, are down 40 or 50 percent just this year. That means they are down a whole heck of a lot more from their recent all-time highs. Here's what I have a problem with. I think she's very articulate. We talk about it all the time. She used to come on our show, and she was one of the first institutional investors talking about Bitcoin Mm -hmm. years ago. And the same thing for articulating what the EV market was going to be right now and then what it might be in five years. So I can't opine on anything other than the fact that she used to come on there and be very transparent. The only problem that I have right now is she talks about betting against U.S. innovation. Well, she should be a VC then because the stocks that are make up the top 10 of her portfolio, they may be innovative companies. They will never get the sort of valuations that pre-public companies are going to get for that innovation. You're telling me that Roku, a top five holding, uh, Coinbase, a top five holding, Zoom, a top five holding are some of the most innovative companies in America right now, they just aren't, right? And they have a lot of fast fouls. They have a lot of competition. Are they among the most innovative publicly traded companies in America? Well, no, I would tell you this. I think that inside of Google, inside of Apple, inside of Amazon, you know, there's probably some of the most innovative businesses, the same size as those companies within them. So what I'm saying is, you know, if you want to be patient in all those names, then have at it. It's going to take a while here. If you buy those here, you might be able to kind of make some back. I'm not sure buying her vehicle is the way to express that view of innovation in the public markets. All right. Meantime, check out shares of CrowdStrike higher on a Goldman Sachs upgrade. The firm says demand is in a sweet spot. Due to the Russia-Ukraine war, Bonowin, you're calling the stock on the poster child for growth. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, we get on here and we talk a lot about the rotation out of growth into value. And the big knock is, amongst other things, these bloated, you know, price-to-earnings ratios or lack of price-to-earnings ratios, bloated enterprise value to sales or, you know, enterprise to revenue. I mean, so you, you look at essentially paying for growth at any cost. And that's what CrowdStrike isn't doing. Of course, it's got a a necessary target adjustable market. Any growth stock should and will. They have one that is large, two, um, $2 billion in ARR. Sorry, um... Uh, $2 billion in ARR, expected to go to $4 billion in ARR over the next three years. But that doesn't really differentiate them, aside from the fact that it is growing. What I will say is that they have a manageable debt load, about $750 million. When you look at the leverage on a lot of these companies, they lever up so that they can grow and financially engineer return on equity. CrowdStrike isn't doing that. And the last thing I'll say is just follow the cash. Free cash flow of about $400, $450 million dollars up from essentially negative or flat down in 2018, 2019. So this company is setting up in a way that allows it to go from purely being valued on a sales or revenue number to being valued on free cash flow or even uh, a net number with adjustments. So I think it's making that transition. And those are the type of companies that I want to look at when I'm paying for growth. Guy, I think you're with the B icebreaker on this one. (laughs) I'm always with the icebreaker. I mean, this was a $298 stock on Halloween again. Boo. Got cut in half, and now it's rallied. I like the Goldman upgrade. Maybe a couple weeks late, but you know what? Best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today, and at least they're doing it. And to Bonowin's point, I mean, valuation, you want to wrap your head around it? You probably can't. But they're one of the premier names in the space with probably close to 55% or so EPS growth. So, I like this call. I think it gets to their price target. Quite frankly, I think it probably gets north of 300, which was the prior all-time high. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Big bank earnings on deck. And our next guest says the energy rally could have a big impact on results. 
His warning next. Plus, U is for uranium. So you better pay attention to this next one. Silver keeps surging too. So how are options traders playing it? The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The bank's kicking off earnings season in just over 12 hours from now. J.P. Morgan and BlackRock on deck tomorrow. Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley hit the tape on Thursday. Financials lower today. Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan among the biggest losers, and the losses may be about to widen. Our next guest warns the wild moves in commodities could lead to some downside surprises in the sector. Let's bring in Gerard Cassidy, head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy for RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, great to have you with us. A lot of the banks have already disclosed what their Russia exposure is. Um, and we know, for instance, that J.P. Morgan was a counterparty to that big nickel trade gone wrong by the Chinese tycoon. So what more is there that has not been disclosed? Because I would think that the banks would probably disclose the biggies, at least. No, no, you're right, Melissa. Thank you for having me on the show. And I would add that it was the volatility in the first quarter in fixed income, particularly in the rates market, which is government uh, bond trading, as well as the commodities. And we don't know the full extent. We will tomorrow, of course, when J.P. Morgan announces its numbers. We also have to remember this counterparty risk here. There could be smaller companies or trading firms that may have had trouble that just hasn't been announced yet. But you did announce the big one, and J.P. Morgan is rumored to be the, you know, the big risk there. Gerard, let's talk about the two numbers I think are most important. Just my view. Net interest margin for J.P.M., probably around 167 but the biggie to me is what you're willing to pay as a multiple of tangible book, which will come in around $72.5. I think the low end is sort of one seven, which makes it $125 stock. We've seen it north of two. How do you look at that in this environment where valuations are getting ratcheted down? No, you're absolutely right, Guy. When, when you take a look at the net interest margin, that is the story for 2022. Now, granted, the capital markets businesses for all these companies – are going to really have tough numbers in the first quarter. But if the Fed f follows through with raising Fed fund rates to upwards to 2% by the end of the year, net interest margins for the group will expand very meaningfully, bringing a considerable amount of revenue to the bottom line. And I think as investors focus in on that, that will benefit the valuations that you just described. Investors are looking through that benefit and they're all focused on a recession, which we don't see happening this year, which, of course, would raise credit costs. And that's why I think the stocks are underperforming in these last two weeks. 
Gerard, you say, according to my notes, that uh, you see the most potential trouble in city, which is no surprise given that it's sitting basically at 52-week lows. And Morgan Stanley, which did surprise me given their mix of business. Why Morgan Stanley? Melissa, what's, what's interesting is going to be what's happening to the asset management and wealth management businesses. We all know about what's happening in the institutional capital markets business. But we have to remember with down markets, many of the revenues generated from these companies are tied to the market values. And think about bond values. Think about retail investors having losses in their bond ETFs or mutual funds. And we haven't seen losses in those funds for years or for many quarters. So I think what you're going to see is just less, uh, less than expected revenue growth in these more annuity-like revenues, which are not as uh, predictable as in a down market as they are in an up market. Gerard, thanks for coming on. Good to see you. Gerard Cassidy of RBC. Um, where do you stand on the banks, BK? I think they're, they're troubled. They're, get, they're getting hit on so many different areas. I mean, not only is fintech trying to come and eat their lunch, but then think about what's going on out there. You've got commodity houses that they're exposed to that they're not going to be able to make those loans to. Uh, they've got uh, consumer issues that, that they may have problems with if you get a recession. Um, so there's so many problems here with the banks. And the biggest tell for me is that the yield curve steep, what got steeper and banks didn't go up. That's the good environment they should go up in or should be that's what Gerard's talking about. And they didn't. So to me, they seem challenged. Um, Guy, I thought of you this morning and that's not necessarily unusual. Um, but in this context, and that is that the U.S. investment firm Capital Group sold their stakes um, of Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank, which they added to during the uh, pandemic. Uh. Uh, they had five percent stakes and they offloaded them. Uh, and I immediately thought of you. Are you sure that was the I mean, uh, banks? I mean, that's a good excuse as any, I guess. I understand. (laughs) Listen, you know my view on Deutsche Bank. You know, one of the biggest derivatives books in the history of mankind. And I think that's just a powder keg waiting to happen. But I think the ancillary, the tangential play is in the form of Citibank. You know, Citibank is one step removed from what's going on with Deutsche and Commerce Bank. And I think BK brings up a good point. These banks are challenged without question. And City trading at 72% of tangible book illustrates exactly that. So when people are paring down bank exposure in this environment, I think you have to take notice. And if credit starts being a concern, and I've mentioned it a number of times in the form of HYG, again, I don't know who Katie is, but she better bar that door. <laughs> Bonwin might know where she is. Bonwin, you're concerned about the consumer accessing credit. Uh, certainly. I mean, well, they, they've already reached out to access credit, which is already adding, you know, balance sheet or leverage to their balance sheet that may or may not have been tapped yet. Juxtapose that with uh, institutional issuance, which is actually low in the first quarter. And you probably won't see the same type of fee generation, which is what I think the other panelists are, are getting to. I also noticed that Cassidy called for a rotation or a preference for regional versus these large trading houses, which definitely does not bode well either. Uh, I think the sentiment has gotten quite negative, so there may be a bit of a reversal here. But, you know, unless the, the, the trading and the M&A fees are what you're essentially paying for, for the J.P. Morgans, the Goldman's, the Morgan Stanley's over, you know, the, the members of the regional uh, KBW or KRE type of index. So I, I don't think that really sets up well. With that said, the sentiment has gotten pretty negative. These are all trading at 
you know, multi-week, multi-month low. So, you know, any positive news, and I think you might see a bit of a reversal there. Yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, you know, Bono, when the sentiment is so bad and these stocks have underperformed so dramatically, even when the stock market was rallying just a couple weeks ago. And I'll just say this, that J.P. Morgan, you're going to know, you know, when they reported their Q4 back in January, it was down 6% the next day. That was a huge gap lower and close lower, and the stock continued to go. If the stock has a relief bounce and the whole group, let's say, bounces, but the quality is not great and the visibility and the guidance is poor. I'm just telling you this, the at the money puts one month out in the XLF, that would be making a bet that the XLF goes lower if you were to buy those between now and then, costs you 3%. 3%. When you think about just the risk that might be encapsulated in those. So I think the options market be underpricing the risk, mm-hmm. kind of saying that sentiment's bad, right. and we don't think there's an immediate gap lower, but maybe you have the opportunity after J.P. Morgan's results. Coming up, pricing power plays. Our traders have their top picks for the companies they say can raise prices and still keep you wanting more. Their answers may surprise you. That's next in the radioactive trade you love to hear about. Uranium keeps surging, so we're checking on this one periodically. Get that? Science humor. How the options pits are playing it next. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out uranium stock Cameco hitting its highest level in more than 11 years and finishing in the green despite today's big market reversal. The stock is up more than 41 percent already this year. And options traders are betting that the big gains are nowhere near over. Mike's got the action. Mike, what do you see? Cameco has seen persistently high options volumes, but even with that, today's volume was more than double the average call volume. Calls outpacing puts by about 13 to 1. And the most active options were the May 35 strike calls. We saw over 44,000 of those trading for just under $1.40 a contract. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the rally that we saw and hitting those new highs today is just the beginning and that we could see highs more than 17.5% higher by May expiration. You like this trade too, BK? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think, I mean, it's been a great trade and I think it continues to be a great trade. There's a couple kind of theses behind this is number one, green energy, right? I've said before, you can't get green without yellow, yellow cake that is. You need uranium. That's the solution to go green. Secondarily, in the short term, you look at what Germany's doing. They're trying to get away from fossil fuels, from Russia's energy. They've got to turn their nuclear plants back on. So I think if you have those kind of two things combined, it seems to me that the uranium trade has some legs. You think you think uranium and this sort of trade is ESG at this point? I think it should be. Guy, you've been a big like watch the ESG trade. You think it is? You think it falls in that category? Yes, absolutely. Maybe it didn't a few years ago, but it's back in it the right way now, without question. And CCJ, obviously, the way to play it. We mentioned Newmont Mining and again, sort of tangential mining stocks. Newmont continues seemingly every day to make new all time highs. The mining sector is absolutely in play. Good for BK. For pointing it out. I don't know this yellow and green thing, but I'll just nod my head in, in, in just accord with him. <laughs> Mike, thank you. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. Not this Friday, but the following Friday will be back 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the good news. You might not have to worry about the price of your next bag of potato chips. The bad news, that's got one company losing its bite today. But are there other brands with a little more power over their price tag? We are naming names next. And April is Financial Literacy Month. Here's the president and CEO of Junior Achievement USA. 
At Junior Achievement, we believe that all schools should be teaching young people about money and savings at very early ages, and it builds up. Like most other subjects students take in school, you don't all of a sudden advance to a master class without having the underlying pinnings of knowledge. We feel strongly that young people need to be exposed at a very early age about managing money and all the things that go into budgeting and finance. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of potato chip maker Utz dropping after a downgrade from Credit Suisse today. Analysts flagging concerns over pricing power. Not a position you want to be in when inflation is surging, but not all consumer names are in trouble. Coca-Cola and Hershey's seemingly setting record highs day after day. So that got us thinking, which brands have the most pricing power? Guy, what is your pick? Would be Constellation Brands, Melissa. That comes out STZ for you playing our home game. Uh, Whisper within an all-time high. Reported earnings on the 7th. JC, that's Jim Cramer, had the CEO on yesterday. And they paint a pretty rosy picture. Modelo, by the way, great commercials. I encourage you to go to the YouTube and check them out. Mondavi, you look at their report. Clearly, although somewhat, some headwinds out there, pricing power is intact as evidenced by their margins. So to me, it's STZ. I would think their margins are a bit fatter than an UTS margin, which is right now being consumed by inputs like oil, grains, things like that. Dan, what's your pick? Mine is Pfizer. And this just, you know, like, think about this. They're kind of recession proof. When you think of some of these pharmaceuticals and you think of some of the the tailwinds that Pfizer has um, right now, it feels like we're going to be taking these boosters for, I don't know, years, um, if you will. But the way the stock has traded over the last year, you see a really nice uptrend bottom left um, to the top right there. And we're well below those recent highs from a few months ago. I just think if you see this thing maybe in the high 40s, that's where I'd look to uh, add to it. Bonowin. Uh, my pick is Lulu, um, and it's not cheap, mid-40s valuation, but I'll tell you what's higher than that, the gross margins, just under 60. Uh, couple that with the fact that they've now made a move to recapture some of the secondary market, and you're attracting a new customer base and kind of taking market share from those secondary online type of uh, uh, stores and resale venues. I mean, I just think they're setting themselves up and kind of creating that mode around inflation, first of all, in terms of their first-hand product, and now in the resale market. Guy, you giggled like a schoolgirl for some reason, so I'm wondering if, what, if you have some kind of commentary. Oh, no, about I, didn't, I can't tell if I – no, I was just – I had a question for Dan. You know, I'm not really familiar with Pfizer and their products. Is there a specific product you were thinking about that they have pricing power, which I'm just sort of – Putting Are you it willing out to pay anything? Hey, hey so Guy Dami, <laughs> if you decided to get yourself into Times Square here today, you would have heard in the commercial break Mel talking about her favorite Utz potato chip, which would be the perfect conversation for you to be right here. She says she loves <laughs> what? What? What chips? Basically, every single chip under the sun is what I said. Yes. <laughs> There's not a potato chip I've met that I didn't like, but that's. That's for later. Um, Brian Kelly, uh, the, the stock with the most pricing power. Yeah, so when I think of that, you've got to find a product that has inelastic demand, which is a fancy way that says you're addicted to it, right? So what, what is the most addictive thing out there? Philip Morris, right? They make cigarettes. You're going to buy those things at any price if you're a smoker. And, uh, frankly, they also own a little bit of beer. And, you know, I know from personal experience that uh, I would probably pay up for a beer in an inflationary environment. So MO, I think, is the way to express this. 
So Philip Morris International, which is PM, or Altria, which is... So I'm sorry, I'm saying Philip, M-O, Altria, yeah. M-O, okay, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. domestic smoking. Exactly. As opposed to international You know, you, you could do either. I don't think that the international <laughs> or, or domestic smokers are any more or less addicted. Or you should do neither, because kids don't... Don't smoke. How you know, many kids eat, are watching? potato chips. How many kids will. are watching? I, just, just in case. I, I tell there's you that what, kid news on Nick. He there's loves a 13-year-old kid out there watching. Yeah. They should be smoking. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Smoking something else. Yeah. All right, coming up, small caps with some big potential. Our next guest says there's plenty of opportunity in the space. She is laying out her picks. Next, more Fast Money in 2. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Twilio. You can catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. And do not forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox with the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now at cnbc.com slash join the club or by using the QR code on your screen. Meantime, check out the Russell 2000 managing a gain today, but still down 11 percent this year. Our next guest says there are some gems among the beaten down group. The last time she was on about a month ago, she picked Jack Henry. Since then, the stock is up about 12 percent. Let's welcome back Kane Anderson, Rundick Portfolio Manager, Senior Research Analyst, Julie Beal. Um, Julie, what, what's your take on small caps right now? You know, I think if you look across the market cap spectrum, small cap is the one that's been most beaten up. And that makes sense, right? You know, you're thinking about uncertainty in global markets. You want companies that are larger and can weather downturns. And I think that makes sense. But I think in small cap, you can find great businesses that are very much in charge of their own destinies. And you have less global exposure, which I don't think is a bad thing right now. Yeah, let's start off with your picks. Clearwater Analytics is one. It's a software as a service company. Um, What gives this sort of uh, control over their destiny, as you like to put it? So one thing that's great about Clearwater Analytics is it does reconciliation for asset managers or insurance companies. Once you put in this software, you are not ripping it out. It is integrated into workflows and all of the processes. And so it has high switching costs. And so with 98% retention of its clients, you know that there's a lot of durability to the earnings. And for that, I think investors would be willing to pay up. Do they upsell once they have a, have a customer in? Are they able to sort of enlarge the revenue stream from that one customer? They can. And to a certain extent, a lot of times they've been benefiting from higher AUM. So, you know, in some ways is yes, but generally speaking, you buy the whole platform all at once. So when they have an increase in sales, you see that as really being new logos and they've been able to just take share consistently over the last few years. If you look at their sales and marketing, they're only spending 11% sales and marketing of uh, revenue. That's very unusual for some of these SaaS businesses that are spending 40, 50% of sales on reve- uh, to generate revenue. It's, you know, just kind of a weaker point. Um, let's get to Ali's bargain outlets. Uh, I, I guess in a, in a recessionary, potentially recessionary environment, I should say maybe this is a good one. <laughs> I think this one is nice. It has a little bit of upside if we have a stronger economy, but I think it also protects you if, let's say, COVID rears its head again or we are in a recession. This business is a discount closeout merchandise retailer, but they have lots of regular goods that you could come in for your toothpaste, you know, your sunscreen, that sort of thing. But they also will just have weird merchandise that they'll have on super sale, like, say, a space heater for $13. You don't really need a space heater, right? But you're like, sure, for $13, it's such a great bargain. So I think they have a really differentiated business model. This business is not 
impacted by Amazon, right? Because none of this merchandise is allowed to be advertised online. So that's a real nice thing to not have to compete against Amazon. I have a closet full of that kind of stuff. Yeah, $12. You might need it down the line. Um, But in terms of inventory, like with inventory so tight, Julian, supply chain issues, how is it with inventory in terms of getting that weird sort of unique merchandise in the door? So this has, I think, been their challenge, and I think that's generally been the the weakness in the stock. But this is a company that has a lot of scale. And so if you're trying to move discount merchandise, say you change the packaging on your sunscreen, right? You don't want it to go on Amazon because you don't want that to be there to be price discovery on that discount. But you have a lot of it, so you're going to go to the biggest source of that. And so Ollie's uses its scale to get the best kinds of deals. With inventory supply chain mismatches, what you see is that people order too much and then they don't get their seasonal merchandise in time and Ollie's is able to buy that that excess. So they're really well positioned for any kind of supply chain challenges, which I think we're going to continue to have for quite a while. Um, your last one is right move. We're just about out of time, but just quickly, Julie, um, what does this company do and why do you like it here? So Rightmove is a company in the UK. They have 90% market share of the listings for uh, real estate. And with that kind of you know concentration, they're really able to dictate how where their business is growing. So even in a softening demand environment for real estate, I still think they're very well positioned. And through a cycle, this business really generates powerful returns. Julie, great to see you. Thank you. Julie Beal. Thank you. Bonwin, do you like any of these picks? I do. You know, I think Clearwater makes sense. I mean, uh, Dan spoke a bit a bit earlier about being in the VC space. And what I, one thing that I do know from my contacts there is that they're typically going to pay for software as a service, and those are going to attract much higher type of multiples. So being that this, that has stickiness, you know, when, I work, when I'm investing in small ta- cap companies, I'm worried about economic cyclicality, things of that nature. So the fact that that has a service as a SaaS unit to it, that makes it, you know, a bit more attractive to me. That, that's a great layup, Bonwin. My friend Jeff Richards, who's watching, just tweeted at me. He loves net dollar retention or net retention that is above 90% right there. You have this company growing sales at 20% a year expected with a 75% gross margin. Stock seems kind of cheap to me. How does Ollie stack up to your dollar gen guy? I know it's a completely different size, but... Listen, anytime you can get a space heater on sale, I'm buying it. I will say Wells Fargo just put a $65 price target on Ollie's after getting obliterated from the summer of 2020. I actually like it here. I don't know who Ollie is, but does it really matter? <laughs> up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Bono and Eisen. I won't pay for growth at any cost, but I will pay for growth if done the right way. CrowdStrike. Guy Adami. We learned so much on tonight's show. I, know. I mean, a lot. Potato chips notwithstanding. Uh, Tenant Healthcare comes out THC. They report on the 20th day of April. I think it continues to rally into earnings. We haven't yet learned who Ollie is, but there's still a few seconds to the show left. BK. Yeah, maybe Ollie can call in, do a phone or something like that, and tell us about space heaters. But <laughs> if you don't want to talk about space heaters, take a look at gold, the way it traded today. Really interesting trading with uh, oil, could be an inflation hedge. Dan? Yeah, guy likes your gold, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, that Julie Beal, that was a master class in some small cap names that we don't usually get to look at. I liked your Clearwater, Cole. 
Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.